Father, we have been singing such uh, wonderful truths today as we acknowledge how much we desperately need Christ. How we thank you that Christ has come to seek and save lost people like us. We thank you that through Christ, we who are so weak and we who are so uh, helpless in many areas, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the one who can give us the help that we need and that we can find hope in him. We pray today, Father, that as we look into your word, as we think about another attribute, another characteristic that is true of you, we pray that you would help us to truly know you, that we might know you as you really are and appreciate the wonder and glory of your awesome being. And we thank you, Father, that through Christ, we have the privilege of knowing you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Death invades our world daily. I don't need to tell you that, do I? We just recently have been hearing and watched reports of another horrific shooting rampage in the recent weeks. And before that... Here on the island, we were reading about and hearing a story of a tragedy of three children drowning in a boat that capsized on the 4th of July. And of course, on any given day, we learn of lives that have been cut short because of automobile wrecks or the ravages of cancer. Sometimes death can come quickly, unforeseen, alarmingly quick. Other times, death comes after a long, slow decline, bringing an end to a long period of suffering. But either way, we are confronted each day with those rude reminders of our mortality. As we celebrate our birthday every year, who celebrated a birthday in the last month or so? Anybody? You don't want to admit it. Okay, I see that. Uh, No, a couple of you did. Uh, celebrated birthdays. Every time you celebrate celebrate birthday, you're confronted with the reality that there was a day in which you began to live your life in this world. That was your beginning of your earthly life. It's a reminder. You're immortal. And most of us, if not all of us, have in our possession somewhere, lockbox somewhere, a birth certificate acknowledging this was the day that you entered the world. And in due time, If Jesus tarries, all of us will be issued a death certificate for our survivors. That's the reality of being mortals. Now, I want us to turn in our Bibles this morning to Psalm 90. I know we've already read through it. I want us to have it in front of us again because I'm going to be trying to draw out some significant observations from this text. This passage of Scripture was composed by Moses the prophet. I think that is highly significant as you read through the text. And I began to sort of meditate on that a little bit about the significance of Moses writing this particular uh, issue on the contemplating this whole idea of mortality and death. Because as I've thought about Moses, he as a prophet witnessed a, a very large number of deaths of the demise of so many thousands of people during his lifetime. So I began to go back through and think about what his life was like. You recall 
there was a time in which he, when he was living in Egypt, he had been adopted uh, by an Egyptian family, the royal family, and here he's there, he watches one of the Egyptians uh, beating a fellow Hebrew. He becomes so incensed and so angry that before you know it, he is hitted this, he hits this Egyptian and kills him and takes his lifeless body and tries to hide it and looked around, made sure nobody was watching. Uh, the reality is people were watching. But he actually felt the dead body and pushed it off to the side and tried to hide it. Years later, Moses witnessed the widespread death which came as a result of what? The final plague where he saw hundreds and hundreds of firstborn dying as a result of that plague in, in uh, Egypt. And then Moses saw the waters of the Red Sea that had built up on either side, allowing him and the children of Israel to go through. He saw those walls of water collapse on the hundreds of soldiers and those in the, in the army of Pharaoh saw their dead bodies washing ashore. And when the children of Israel made a golden calf and worshipped it while Moses was on Mount Sinai, we know that after that, when he came down and he began to tell them and, and, and remind them and confront them over the, the idolatry they got involved in, 3,000 people were put to death that day alone. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people dying. It just goes on and on. Wandering in the wilderness, severe plague killed over 14,000 due to the sin of Korah. And Moses, we read also in Numbers, outlived his sister. He outlived his brother. And obviously that made a big impact on him, I'm sure, as well. And during the last 40 years of his life, while he's wandering in the wilderness, leading the children of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land, as you know, he gets to the, to the eastern side of the, of the uh, yes, that little river there. What's that river called? He gets to the river there, uh, Jordan River, sorry, and he's trying to get ready to cross over, and God had said, you're not going to make it into the Promised Land. And none of the generation who came out of Egypt are going to make it in there. So that means he witnessed the death of all those people who died off over the years and years and years. And there he is getting ready to go in the promised land. And I think that's about the time that he wrote this. And I want you to listen to one thing he wrote before we look at Psalm 90. Listen to what he wrote in his final sermon from Deuteronomy. Uh, and he says this as he's getting ready to enter the promised land. He says, the eternal God is a dwelling place. The eternal God is a refuge, he says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 33. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, I've contemplated the brevity of life. I've contemplated the fact that there is no ultimate security in this world because why? I've seen lots of death. I myself, he says, I'm going to die. So he's speaking to the next generation. Remember, there's an everlasting God. The eternal God is your ultimate refuge. Now I want us to look at this hymn that he's composed here, this Hebrew hymn in Psalm 90, because he's going to now uh, offer some reflections about mortality and, the, uh, and, and also human mortality and also the eternality of God, the fact that God is eternal. And as we look at this, I want us to look uh, carefully at a couple of points here. Let's look first of all now reflecting on the eternality of God. Look at verse 2. Well, we'll start with verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you did give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is without beginning, and God is without end. And one of the unique attributes of God, which we talked about in previous weeks, we used the, the very um, the significant word, 
incommunicable. That means we can't imitate this completely. We cannot in any way uh, match this particular attribute of God. It's incommunicable. It's a unique attribute of God. His eternal existence is what sets him apart. Because every other form of life has been created by God. We have a beginning. We were made by God. So God is timeless. He is ageless. And he has always existed and he always will. The angels in heaven in Revelation chapter 4, it speaks of them being before God and they recognize in their worship of God how significant it is that he has always existed. Listen to what the angels say in heaven. Day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits upon the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne. They will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne. God's nature is such that he lives forever and ever and has always lived forever and ever. And therefore he is worthy to be worshiped. Our lives on this earth are only for a mere moment. And God is forever. The Lord is worthy of glory and honor because He's the uncreated one. He is without a beginning or an end. Psalm 93, again, tries to portray the significance of this. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded Himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established of old. You are from everlasting. Again, the reminder of the significance of God is so awesome in that He is the uncreated one. He is eternal. William MacDonald has summarized, I think, some helpful uh, implications of this verse there in Psalm 93. He says this. I think it's in your notes. God is an eternal king who reigns forever in an, over an everlasting kingdom from an eternal throne. That's the God that we're called to worship. No wonder Moses anchored his need for security, anchored his need for stability in the face of death to the eternality of God. It was, it's something he was drawn to think and ponder. Because why? Because he was aware of how weak he was and how he knew his life was about to expire, his physical life. That's the nature of God. Think about for a moment the names of God and his, his eternal nature. There are many titles, of course, given to God found in scriptures, but there are some that emphasize this uniqueness of his eternal nature, starting off with Abraham. Here's Abraham receiving from God these promises. He says, you're going to have this, this son. It's an impossible thing, humanly speaking, but you're going to have this son, and from him are going to be all the people of the earth are going to be blessed. And so after a while, as Abraham begins to try to grapple with what all that means, finally he, there are moments in which we see the glimpse of his faith evidence itself. And he says in Genesis 21, he refers to God, the God who has made this covenant with him. He says, you are the everlasting God. Now that's significant because the time in which he worked, saw other people and other cultures around him all had a God who was, was de de developed by or invented by various people groups as they came up with their own gods. But here he says, no, God, you are the everlasting God. And Isaiah, years later, challenged the people of his generation who were assuming that God had somehow forgotten about them. 
things had, got, had become so difficult for them, things had declined so much in their society and civilization, they began to wonder, well, you know, God, you must be clueless about our situation. And so here's what Isaiah says on behalf of God. Isaiah 40. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, he doesn't become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. You see, when the early Christians, even in the church, the New Testament church, early Christians in the first century, they wondered why Jesus, who in his victory over sin and death and the forces of evil, they're trying to figure out, wait a minute, how does that victory have have any kind of impact now when the Roman Empire, particularly the emperors like Nero and others who followed him, began to just eradicate, put their thumb down hard upon these Christians in seeking to persecute them, put them to death, make them suffer in incredible ways. They're like, where, are, where is this King Jesus? They're, they're struggling. They're trying to make sense of it all. And so what does Jesus say in his introduction of himself through the revelation given through Apostle John, Revelation chapter 1, he says this, I am the Alpha and Omega. Now, how many of you know what that means? Alpha and Omega. Alpha is what? The first letter of the Greek alphabet. And Omega is, like our Z, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And he's saying, I am the beginning and I am the end. He is saying to them, and he goes on. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One. He's reminding them of his eternal nature. And therefore, they can find hope in him. He is the ruler over all forever and ever. The Apostle Paul concluded his epistle to the Romans with the following benediction in Romans chapter 16. He says, To him who is able to establish you, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of whom? Of the eternal God be glory forever and ever. He alludes to the fact that God is eternal. Whether it's the Hebrew Scriptures, whether it's the Greek New Testament Scriptures, God is addressed by the titles celebrating His eternality. I want to think just for a moment now about a third aspect about this eternal God. I want to think about how does He relate to time. If God is eternal, then how does He relate to time? Because we are all about time. I had to put on my watch again today. I don't wear a watch as a general rule anymore because when I'm typing on my computer, it hurts my wrist. And so I find I don't even wear it. I just use my cell phone or whatever I have to do to find the time. But here I'm wearing my my watch today because I have to be conscious of time. Aren't you glad? I think you are. Okay. Let's uh, look and think about this, about how does God's relationship to time work? Well, the issue of how God relates to time, I'm going to say, first of all, this can easily show you how small our puny brains are, okay? So I'll just admit that. It just pushes the limits of our understanding. We start talking about these big subjects about time and God relating to time. First of all, I need to point out that God created time. So think of this. God existed, and then time began. That's sort of weird, isn't it? Because we always think of, well, time is... How can you not have time? You know, it's like, it's just your brain just like can't get, get, get a little uh, hand around that. But here's a good thing to think. Time does not limit God because God created time. He existed before there was time. Now, here's an interesting concept too. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology, he points out that God sees everything that happens in time. He sees it vividly. 
vividly. What do you mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. Look, look at Psalm 90, verse 4. Psalm 90, verse 4. He says, For a thousand years in your sight, God, are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. Now, he's not talking about watch in the night in terms of your timepiece. He's talking about, about a three or four hour period. They divided the night into three or four hour periods in which someone would be on guard for three or four hours or they would have a three or four hour uh, uh, phase of the night and that's what he's alluding to, just a short period of time. So what he's saying here is, he's saying that for a long period of time, it seems like nothing to God because he vividly knows all the details within that long period of time. How different that is from you and me. For example, if you've lived as many years as I have, or you're in the same range of life as I am, and so I'm 55, and so you've lived a while. Doesn't seem like very long. I still feel like I'm young inside. But anyway, it's 55 years. It's difficult, however, the longer you live, to remember the details of your life a number of years ago. For example, I've been sitting here thinking, okay, would I be able to tell you what happened on the 29th day of July when I was 29 years of age? Forget it. It is just blur. I don't know any, I can't even hardly think where I was then. I'm not, I don't have full dementia, okay? I'm just telling you. You, you, do, you do that for yourself. Where were you when you were nine years of age on the 29th of July? What were you doing? Can't think back that far. Don't know. I might be able to tell you where I lived. I might tell you a couple things. But what exactly happened that day? Forgot it. And now you think about that's just one day in our short lifetime here. If you press me, don't press me though. I can't even hardly tell you the details of what happened three months ago, right? For some of us. Okay, here's the point. Our memories fade over time. And the details of what happened in my life more and more increasingly are lost as I add more and more experiences to my life day by day, right? Does that happen to you? Am I alone in this? You're with me, right? Okay. Now, think about God. Think about the details of all of what's happening in history. Just take a sample, as the psalmist says, let's take a thousand-year period. Take a millennium. That, to him, was like a huge span of time. That's a number of generations. Take all of those events of that time, all the days of what happens at and say, God is so aware and sees so vividly the details of every moment of that time, it's as if it happened just yesterday. Now, some of us can remember what we did yesterday. I hope. Think for a moment. Hopefully it'll come back to you. But that's how vividly God sees a huge span of time. Because why? He's eternal. So therefore, he relates the time in ways in which he's very conscious of every moment of time. Unlike us, we, oftentimes it just gets to be a big blur uh, in our lives as we go through the days of our existence on this earth. God remembers these long periods of time as if it happened yesterday. And he sees events in time and he acts in time, he actually gets involved in what's happening in the world in which he made. And he lives in an everlasting now. There is no past for God. There is no future for God, if you think about it, because he lives in eternal existence. He exists apart from time in that he created it, but he also acts in time. Now, I know I'm getting deep here, so just hear me out. 
His promises that he made in Scripture regarding the future, his references to the past, are actually for the benefit of finite creatures like you and me who are so conscious of time. God is, he doesn't need all that help of time. He can function in time, he can function out of time. Indeed, our everlasting God is Lord and Master of time. And God is as aware of the details of your life right now as he was the details of Moses' life when the children of Israel were wandering those 40 years in the wilderness. That's the everlasting God with whom we have to do. Now I want to take that and I want to just sort of let that sit for a while. And before you forget what I just said, I'm going to move to the second point and try to talk about we've affirmed that God is eternal. I want us to now think through the implications of the fact that we affirm that we are people who are... uh, mortals, and we are sort of the trans, transitory nature of humanity. That is, we're just here for a period of time, and then, then we're gone. We leave this world. Now, when you compare ourselves to God's eternal existence, the length of our life is infinitesimally small. I tried to think of an illustration. Can you, suppose you took all of the sandy shores of all of North America and South America combined, Okay? If you were to go along the perimeter, the shorelines of of those great masses of land that are connected all the way around except for this, you know, the uh, Panama Canal, but you suppose it connects all the way through there and all the way around you go on all the sides. And if you take all those grains of sand, represent all the years and moments of all of life, let's say, you just keep going around. I know that's finite, but suppose it just kept on going. And you take one of those sand, little grain of sand, that's my life, that's your life in the long, vast flow of eternity. just blows your mind about how short our life is compared to the vastness and the length of God's eternal existence. And here's Moses now. He, he's, he's mentioning in this text, in verse uh, 5 and 6, he talks about how we wither away. God sweeps them away. They return to dust. He's alluding to what? Verse 3. You, t- you turn man back to dust. He's talking about the fact that when God created man, he created him from dust. And so there's a sense in which the, the mortality is, it's obvious that we do eventually decay and, and, and become part of the created matter again. Our bodies do. And all of us have seen the summary of a person's life carved onto a tombstone, haven't we? You come up to a tombstone, someone you never even knew. Uh, sometimes I'm on vacation. I've gone into old, old cemeteries, try to find old, one of the oldest, you know, uh, tombstones there that have one of the oldest dates. And and you find the person's date of birth listed there. And then sometimes they'll have a hyphen. And then they'll have the person's date of death on there. And so that's sort of the summary of their, their mort- mortal existence in this world. And And the hyphen there represents what? That's their earthly life. That's everything that happened in all the, between those two dates. And our earthly life, of course, is still being written. That hyphen has not been joined to another date on the other side yet. But it's a reminder that we are frail and that we're vulnerable. That's what Moses is very much aware of as he's writing this. We are frail and vulnerable people. All of us live under the cloud of disease and decline, physical decline, and death. Why? Due to the curse of sin on this world. And whether we live a couple of decades or whether we live a full century, 
which many people do amazingly in our world. The fact is that all of us, because we're made in the image of God, we yearn to be people who have a continuing nature. We, we yearn for eternity. We yearn for something to keep on going. And I find it interesting that Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 affirms the same thing. It says, God has made everything appropriate in its time. God has also set eternity into their heart. Because we're made in the image of God, He has wired us to long for permanence and to have eternal significance beyond this world. So Moses, not surprisingly, in this psalm, he turns his heart toward God as he approaches his death, as he feels the weakness of his physical body start to take hold. And since God is uncreated and eternal, He alone is a safe refuge. Notice that, verse one, God, you alone have been our dwelling place. He talks about the fact that there is a sense in which there is safety in God. And many of us will never give a moment's thought to the, the suddenness or the unplanned interruption of death. Across the generations of time, there have been many civilizations that have come and they have gone. And God has been and ever will be the only sure foundation. Only an everlasting God can make eternally secure the people who trust in Him. God is a refuge, a secure dwelling place for those who will humbly rely upon His promises, including the promise of a Redeemer. Indeed, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And Jesus conquered death. He now reigns in heaven. And the only security available to us to face our own demise and the resultant judgment which will inevitably follow for any sinner who has defied God and broken His laws, which is all of us, the only security we'll find is to be united by faith to the sinless Son of God and to therefore find in Him the one who loved us, the one who gave Himself up for sinners like us. He is the only one who could give us that security. In facing his own death, Moses confidently with a great expectation, he knew that God not only existed, but he knew that God dealt in mercy and grace to those who trusted in him and his promises. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses and those of his generation died looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He looked beyond this world to a world to come. What, what a difference that is to people who don't trust in the true everlasting God and his promises. I came across Mark Twain's writings not too long ago. His actual name is Samuel Clemens. And as he moved toward death himself, he became more cynical. He became more uh, full of doubt as he thought about death. And this is his reflections about what, what life in this world will ultimately play out like. He says this, A myriad of men are born, they labor, they sweat, and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for mean little advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them, and the joys of life is turned to aching grief. There's a lot of truth to that, right? Then he says this, Death comes at last, and, the, and they vanquish from the world where there were no, where they were of no consequence 
speaking of the, everybody who's lived in the world, it's of no consequence in your life. A world which will lament them for a day and forget them forever. Wow, what a, what a cynical view of what the, how life will play out. That's when Jesus is nowhere in the picture. That's when we don't really have a sense of the greatness of our eternal God and His promises in Christ. Now what I'd like to do is ask you to turn in your Bibles just for a second here. Stay with me. We're going to dig in some more deep water here just for a second. In 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1. Second Timothy 1 has a passage in which Paul is speaking to a person who is full of fear. A person who is timid, a person who is easily afraid of so many things. He's speaking to Timothy. Timid Timothy, the guy that I can relate to so well. And in speaking to Timothy, he's saying, listen, Timothy, I want you to be confident. Not in yourself. I want you to be confident in God. I want you to be confident in the gospel. I want you to be confident and not let fear control your life because you have much that God wants to do in your life, but I don't want you to see you sidelined over here, timid, away from uh, being willing to suffer for the gospel. I want you out there serving Christ and doing whatever he calls you to do. And so in reading this passage, I want you to notice now that hope, hope-filled, indestructible security for mortal sinners like you and me is inextricably joined together and tied to God's eternal plans. We're talking about God and His eternality. We know that God has an eternal plan. Look at what he says here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Notice that again, the emphasis on God's eternal purpose, God's sovereign work in providing through Christ the ground and salvation of true eternal security. He says, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. So it's not about what we've done or accomplished or, or failed to do or failed to accomplish. It's not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which He granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Folks, that's deep water. That is beyond my understanding. He's talking now what? Talking about eternity. That's before my time. Granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who what? Who nullified, He overthrew death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now I just want to say to you right now, I cannot fully explain to you all of these verses. Okay? I'm just going to tell you my limitations. I am going to try to just tell you what I think I have drawn out of these texts in terms of what I, I feel like I can grapple with, and that's this. No one is ever going to find eternal security against the threat of divine justice on the basis of relying upon our good works. That if you think you're going to somehow depart this world and you know that someday you're going to die and you're going to stand before God, the eternal God, the just and holy God, and you somehow think that you're going to say, okay, well, listen, God, I did this, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and, I did, and start listing off all the things you've done. My friend, you have no security because it's not on the basis of what you've done, he says. I don't care if what you've done, you can even list a couple of respectable acts of piety or what you may have, have on your list of good works. Now, I can't fully explain it all here, but look at what he says in the verse here. He says it clearly is, 
The confidence that Paul wants Timothy to have is not confidence in his abilities and his performance. It is a confidence in the eternal God who has eternal purposes that are going to work and trump and overcome all of the obstacles that's going to stand in its way and that God will eternally save his own. Watch this. He says that God is sovereignly designing, initiating, sustaining, and completing salvation. It is God's eternal plan to save sinners on the basis of his sovereign grace. And that was revealed when Jesus came and carried out all of his, his, uh, his ministry. And he, therefore, at his first coming, his first appearing, clearly God's eternal purposes were carried out, which the Father wanted him to do, in fulfilling what? This incredible salvation. And believers, therefore, can have boldness, we can have confidence to have access to Jesus, to have a relationship with Jesus and to know the eternal God through Jesus Christ and what he's done, not on the basis of our good works, our, our attempts to try to be better people. Look at Ephesians 3.11. There's another verse teaches the same thing. John 6, I can't get into all those verses. John 6, 37 to 40. Read those verses and begin to realize there's some plan and purposes of God in eternity that are worked out through Jesus Christ that we are called upon to say we need to trust in Christ. He has the plan and God is working the plan in, in accordance to what he has chosen to do in eternity. And because of Jesus, the righteous life that he lived and the selfless sacrifice he died upon that cross and his resurrection from the dead, and those who are joined to him by faith, we can therefore what? Know that death is found to be inoperative in us. Does that mean we're not going to die? No, it means that death does not ultimately have its final way with us. It does not remove us from God permanently and leave us in despair and cut off from the God who made us. Essentially, what happens when you die and you're in Christ, it ushers you into the presence of Christ with the assurance that someday you will be complete, even having a resurrection body because Jesus himself broke the chain of death. As a matter of fact, physical death, which oftentimes fills us with fear. I can remember when I was young, dying was the worst thing I could possibly imagine. I was terrified of dying when I was young. And now, as I've learned and read through the Scriptures, and I realize what Christ has done, not because I'm a good person, but because of Jesus, I can now say, you know, I look at death and I can say, well, if I were to die, it's very much better. Philippians 1, 23. Because when I die, guess what? I go to be with Christ, who himself has brought, brought, won the victory over death. And for a mere mortal who is under the curse of sin, that's the greatest of all, my friends. That's the greatest joy, delight, is to know Christ and what he's done for you. came across a song a number of years ago written by a man called Henry Milan, M-A-L-A-N, in the mid-19th century. And it's been modified, the words. He says this, for those who are in Christ, a true believer, you think about dying, he's got a whole other twist on it. He says, it is not death to die. Listen to these words. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It's not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before the throne delivered from our fears. Oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will find mercy. That is not, it is not death to die. 
It is not death to fling aside the earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. Do you sense the hope? Do you sense the confidence in the person who wrote those words? In our world, we, some people assume death is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. Now, it is an awful thing. I don't want to downplay that. I've cried over many people dying, believe me. But death for a believer ushers us into glory. And because of Christ's victory over the forces of death and evil, we are confident that there is this full redemption. There is the full restoring that God is going to bring about through Jesus Christ someday in our body and our spirit. In the gospel, God has secured through Jesus Christ a life that is immortal and incorruptible. And through the work of Jesus who paid the penalty for sin, dying on that cross, being raised for our justification, sinners like you and me can now enjoy the gift of what? Not just temporal life, eternal life. Eternal life, not just in terms of quantity of life, but eternal life in that is we share in the life of God. We actually know God. We actually can enjoy God. We can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and know the one whom he has sent. That is eternal life. It is something you can possess even now in this world through Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you know that gift? Are you confident of Christ? Do you know God or do you just know about God? Maybe you've been a person that has attended church for many years and you're aware that you come into this world and you're cut off from God. That is, you're going your own way. And you know that when you face the reality of your uh, foolish sins and the things that you've done to offend God, there is some day when you know that's going to lead to a life separated from God, but not through Jesus Christ. Christ came that we might what? Know God and share in the eternal life of God and all that he has done for us in the gospel. I can still remember the day where that became so powerful in my life when the fear of death was replaced with the confidence in Christ. It was a radical change in my life. And it gave me a sense in which the beginning of my confidence is in Jesus to know that a mere mortal like me can enter into the life of God. Why? Because I've joined to Christ by faith. What a joy. What a delight. What a blessing. Let me just point out one more thing I want to mention here in terms of practical things here. Um, I want to mention too that because God is eternal, there is a danger that we need to resist or there is a tendency we need to resist and that is we live in a society that basically says what's important is what happens now. Now is when it's all the significance of everything that's going to happen is right now. And so people who are materialists, people who think that all that exists is all you see right now, there is no God, they would say that life is meaningless in the big scheme of things, and therefore, they follow the philosophy of what? Eat, drink, be happy. Why? For tomorrow you die. It's all over. That's it. They don't have any sense of eternity. They don't have any sense of, of, of relating to the eternal God. The Bible, on the other hand, 
verse 12, Psalm 90, says, if I'm aware of how mortal I am and how my life can just slip away so quickly, and I'm aware of the eternal God who's there and who has, who has created time, he says, listen, I need to be in prayer. I need to say, Lord, give me a heart of wisdom. <laughs> Help me understand what's important in life. Help me live and live a life in such a way that I'm living in accordance with your insights and your truth, and I'm living those out of my day-to-day life, and that I am therefore investing myself in seeking your kingdom as opposed to my kingdom, getting done what I want to see accomplished. And so he says we need discernment. We've got to figure out what it is that's eternally important and pursue the things that God would have us pursue. And that means for some of us, it means I've got to slow down a little bit and pray a little more. Because prayer is an assumption that there is an eternal God who's at work in time. And that I desperately need Him. And I can have a relationship with Him and I need to be in in communion with Him. And if I'm just running around in life doing, 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 and living life on my own, then I really have not gained a heart of wisdom that says, I need God. And I need Him to be at work in me because I've got many areas of challenge that I need desperate help day by day, moment by moment. And life is going to slip by quickly unless I stay in touch with my commander and my king overall. I would say also that, uh, interestingly enough, as Paul realized the aches of his body and the, the difficulties he had from a body that had been stoned, a body that had been beaten, a body that had been shipwrecked, and all these different things, his comments are fascinating in Second Corinthians chapter 4, where he says this, He says, I'm fixing my eyes not on what is seen. He says, I'm not so so as concerned with things that this world puts such value on. I'm fixing my eyes on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is what? Eternal. Some of us barely give a thought to what life will be like beyond this world. We're so busy, consumed with what this world is going to provide me and going to uh, sustain me and my security is all wrapped up in my 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 uh, my sense of celebration and joy is all wrapped up in the things of this world we've lost sight of the eternal but god has made us for himself and the goal of true christians is to be like christ and therefore he says in verse 14 of psalm 90 we need to pray and say lord satisfy me with your love every day teach me not to be satisfied with the things of this world teach me to be satisfied with you Because I am wired and I've built to be designed to know you and to commune with you forever and ever in eternity and to enjoy your love and celebrate the greatness of who you are. That's what my life is made for. Teach me to find my joy and greatest delight in you. And for some of us, that's a big prayer because many of us are saying, you build your life by saying, my security is wrapped on what people think of me. My sense of security and self is to make sure I get approval of other people or to make, gain the, the, the sense of, of respect of other people. And therefore, I'm driven to be the best in whatever I'm trying to do. And I'm going to try to achieve and gain and get whatever. I want status. I want this. Because I'm trying to impress people. And I would say to you, Moses would remind you, said, hey, listen here, I've seen a lot of people die. But God is eternal. You need to seek him day by day to be satisfied in his love for you. Go to the cross. Find Jesus to be the one who gives you that sense of satisfaction, wholeness, and security, and love. Go to Christ, and you'll find it in Him. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, you have allowed all of us to live so many days upon this earth by your grace and your mercy. We don't deserve to live, Lord. Scriptures say, he who sins, he shall die. And Lord, sometimes we try to push away the reality of our mortality. We try to ignore the fact that we are weak people who have no hope in and of ourselves. A people who are insecure, vulnerable, transient. And Father, I pray that today you might impress upon everyone here how much we need Christ. How much we need to join ourselves to Christ by faith, not trying to be better people, not trying to earn some sort of merit, but to trust Jesus and alone, Him alone, in what He has done in His first coming to provide for us a hope, an eternal hope, an eternal inheritance. Lord, teach us to rest in the living hope we have in Jesus Christ, to know that His resurrection from the dead has provided the only means we'll ever have to have an imperishable, undefiled inheritance reserved in heaven for us. And Lord, I pray that you would teach all of us to rejoice in the fact that we are protected by your power as we trust in your great salvation. Fill us, Lord, with so much confidence and so much a sense of security in Jesus Christ that we can be risk-takers in this world. We can be bold. We can be people who step out and not be so entangled in having to have all the things and all of our security and joys wrapped up in the material things of this world, that we can be freed up, Lord, with a passion to know you and to make you known. So, our eternal God, may you accomplish your eternal purposes among us, even by drawing to yourself, even this day, those who, as of yet, have not found Christ to be their joy and their hope and their only means to eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.